From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. I had a quick listen before we came on air and it was so repulsive that I'm loath to inflict it on you. My mum would have been 22 at the time. Oh, great, great. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting, do you know yes, what I mean? Yes. Obviously, I won't be telling you all of it, but it's... <laughs> Changing mothers and fathers to parents does an awful lot in terms of representation of families that aren't made up of a mother and father, for instance, but it does absolutely no harm to the story. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, long-distance kissing? There's an app for that. Dublin hotels are full for St. Patrick's weekend, unless you're willing to pay silly money and a diary in a bag one cork woman's unexpected find that's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that may have an airbnb opportunity available towards the middle of next month the musings on the news or newsings if you will on this morning's ryan tuberty show started with concerns about data harvesting on people's phones Okay, that may be an exaggeration of the seriousness of this particular newsing. The the banning of TikTok from people's phones intrigues me. Uh, That they've done it in certain states in America. Now, this is to say government officials and uh, people who work for the various states, European Commission have said, no, if you have one of our phones, you can't have TikTok on it. And now Canada have followed suit, banning TikTok from all of its phones and other devices citing concerns about data data protection. And the TikTok, whose parent company, ByteDance, is Chinese, has faced increasing Western scrutiny in recent months over fears about how much access Beijing has to user data. If you're on TikTok this morning, do you care? That's my question. When you're scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, that mindless... (laughs) And utterly, I have no doubt, enjoyable uh, hour in your life where the finger hits the screen and another clip of Joe Biden making a bag of a speech comes up. And then another clip of somebody who tries to land on a lilo but falls on their face comes up and you think, I need more of this in my life. Scroll, scroll, scroll. And with every scroll, the suggestion seems to be that some head the ball in China is going, yes. More data, more, more. And the boss comes in and said, what's happening in Europe and Canada and all the United States? Oh, they have no idea. They're looking at clips of Joe Biden, but Joe Biden falling up steps. And every time they do, we get more. And what are we doing with all that? We're putting it in a cauldron. And what are we doing with that cauldron? We're filling it with data and data. And no one knows how to pronounce that word in itself. It's great. Some people think it's data, some data, and even that's confusing because they'll look that up on TikTok and they'll scroll and they'll scroll on TikTok and try and find, is it TikTok or TikTok or TikTok or TikTok? Who knows? It's, it, it, you know what? You could always just not be on it. That could, that could be helpful. I'm not sure. But I will tell you, Canada has decided it's gone. I wonder will the Irish government at some stage say, if you have a phone that uh, deals with government business, get rid of it. They've stopped the phones going into the cabinet meetings. I thought that was about leaking, but maybe it's something more sinister. Either way, I feel another conspiracy theory coming on. So let's get busy stirring the pot. Get all your TikToking in now while you still can. Meanwhile, in other China-related news, something far more bizarre, not to mention deeply unpleasant, is happening. A Chinese device advertised as a way to let long-distance couples share real physical Intimacy is causing a buzz among Chinese social media users who've reacted with both intrigue 
and shock. Equipped with pressure sensors and actuators, the device is said to be able to mimic a real kiss by replicating the pressure, the movement and the temperature of a user's lips. Along with the kissing motion, it can also transmit the sound the user makes. The sound. However, while many social media users saw a funny side to the device, others criticised it as vulgar and, I think the word I'd yet definitely use for it, creepy. Some voice concerns that younger people could buy. We don't want to. But it, it, is, this, is this like you, you buy, did I see a picture of it this morning? You buy a, like a, a model of a pair of lips and then you kiss it in the hope that it's, but how, do they, do, can they program it so that it, you, your, your partner's, like, is that how it works? How? What? Okay. To send a kiss, users need to download a mobile phone app and plug the device into their phone's charging port. After pairing with their partners in the app, couples can start a video call and transmit replicas of their smooches to each other. According to the uh, papers over there, the invention has been patented and uh, they reckon it's a, uh, it's, 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 it's a similar invention. The Kissinger, I'm sure he'd be delighted with that, was launched in 2016, but it came in the form of a touch-sensitive silicon pad rather than realistic-looking lips. So it's, it's, it's moved on. The noises. What class of noises are you making? Well, some people are very, very noisy when it comes to this uh, area in life. They've even, from the, from the general uh, app, they've, they've given me a, a, here in front of me that I can share with you and I had a quick listen before we came on air and it was so repulsive that I'm loath to inflict it on you. You know, there's a cost of living crisis. The weather's only okay today. You don't need this in your lives, do you? Oh, no. Stop, I can't, I can't do it. I'm so sorry. That's just disgusting. I mean, I'm no prude, but for goodness sake, that is, that's repulsive. So you download the app and you have the noises and no. No, you, do you know what? You nearly just wait. I'll see you when I see you. <laughs> that was not something you hear every day, was it? Actually, it might be worth another listen. Oh, no. Okay, Tubbs is absolutely right. That's really viscerally unpleasant. I, I do apologise for inflicting it on us all a second time. Oh, no. Sorry, so sorry. This editing software has a mind of its own. Uh, let's move on quickly before we all need to grab a bucket. Next thing you know, we'll all be dating Ben's and then we'll be in real trouble. Karen's. Anytime we mention the, this idea of a Karen, people get quite upset uh, on the on text, don't they? They kind of go in and say, don't stop encouraging the talk of the Karen thing. And yet it's a completely a thing in the real world. Uh, so, whether you like it or not, which I think you probably don't like, especially if your name is Karen. You know what a Karen is. It's the person who's the first to give out and complain and became a thing. Um, but there's a Ben now. Sorry, Ben. All the Bens listening in today. It's a new thing, which I wasn't aware of. As relationship gurus on TikTok warn women off dating men named Ben. Uh, they're saying that it's, it's not nice. Never, never date someone called Ben. A cautious, cautions a young woman. Save yourself. If you're dating a man named Ben, you better run. Because uh, apparently it's known as the Ben stage. 
an apparently sincere bit of dating advice in which heterosexual women urge other heterosexual women to never ever date someone called Ben. If they do, the trend claims they'll face dire consequences. My Ben stage put me in therapy, one person writes. My Ben stage caused permanent trust issues. Unfortunately for Ben's, they're being connected to bad behaviour in relationships by mere coincidence. And the fact that Benjamin has been a popular baby name every year since 1996 doesn't matter. So poor old Ben's, they, apparently when, when you've gone out with somebody for ages and ages and then they, something happens, the relationship turns, they, be, they become Ben. So we've gone from cocaine bear to gentle Ben in the course of two stories. And Ben is, Ben and Karen, If are there... Are there couples? I pronounce you man and wife. Would they be the couple goals for 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 names? I now pronounce you Ben and Karen. You may kiss the bride. Oh no! Sorry, sorry. That's it. I promise. It's been expunged from the edit. Honestly, seriously. Let's quickly take some celeb news before it's too late. Steve Coogan who you'll know as Alan Partridge and all sorts of things, uh, is getting an Irish passport. And we spoke to him on The Late Late Show some years ago when he was on with John C. Riley in 2019. And his Irish credentials are pretty good. My granddad ran a dance hall in uh, Manchester 4, uh, expat Irish, who uh, wound up in Liverpool and uh, Manchester. Yeah, he ran a dance hall there where everyone... They, I mean, the Irish in those days were sort of... Uh, it was no blacks, no dogs, no Irish after the war, you know. And so they tended to stick together and yes. uh, go to the same nightclubs. And my granddad won, run, ran one of those clubs. There you go. That's Steve Coogan. Uh, now, uh, it was kind of pretty much an honorary Irishman, but he's uh, the full duck. The full duck? Is that an actual saying? Have I fallen behind in my cultural studies? Huh. Well, at any rate, let's finish up on some sad news for Dublin-based musical types. McCullough Pickett's is to close after 200 years in Dublin. That is a long time. Music shop McCullough Pickett is to close. Uh, generations of music pupils brought their instruments and sheet music from the shop. It started out as Pickett on Grafton Street in 1823. Quite the history. The instrument shop remained there until a devastating fire destroyed the premises in 1967, writes Rona McCreevy this morning. McGreevy, the Irish Times. The original founder of McCullough's, Dennis McCullough, was the president of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, but was sidelined by Patrick Pert, Pierce and Tom Clark during the Easter Rising. He was from Belfast and moved south to continue his business affairs after independence as a piano tuner and luthier? L-U-T-I-E-R. Is that like as in a lute playing person to tune them? No, it's not. It's something else. It's a guitar maker, really, an instrument maker. A guitar maker is called a luthier. But, but has it any relation to the lute as an instrument, I wonder? Either way, that's a, that's a new word for me this morning. I think I bought, I have, I have an acoustic guitar, which might come as a surprise to you. Uh, I have about four chords, maybe five, that I can play. And the truth. And um, I uh, think I bought it there uh, when I was about 19, 18 or 19. And still going, I have to say. Not very often, but still going. That did come as a surprise to me. It really did. Not 100% sure why, but there you have it. Some say the heart is just like a wheel. And that's where we leave the newsings from this morning's Ryan Tuberty Show. The Irish Hotels Federation says that Dublin is experiencing unprecedented demand for hotel accommodation on St. Patrick's Day and that all 22,000 rooms across the city are almost totally booked out. 
This morning, Claire Byrne asked the question, has the cost of staying in the capital become out of reach? To help answer that question, possibly, Claire was joined on the line by Owen O'Mara Walsh, CEO of the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation. In relation to St. Patrick's uh, weekend, it's an interesting one so far as about 98-99% of those 22,000 uh, bedrooms that you mentioned have already been sold. So effectively Dublin is sold. And what you have is you have a handful of rooms being sold at what I think are frankly ridiculous prices. And I think consumers should vote with their wallets and, and go elsewhere or, 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 you know, accept that Dublin is full and, and unfortunately plan another weekend. But the, but the think, very fact, Owen, that the rooms are all sold out and you have these couple of places demanding these prices show, shows that there is boom time in Irish hospitality. It's doing well, really, really yeah, well. well. Well, remember, St. Patrick's weekend is, is a strange one insofar as you have St. Patrick's Day on the Friday followed on the Saturday by the Ireland-England effectively Grand Slam decider, and then you have Mother's Day on Sunday. So St. Patrick's weekend is not a, 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 an accurate weekend, if you like to, you know, reflect mm. upon the whole season. But overall, um, the room rates we know are up 19% in price since 2019. Yeah, and, and, and exactly. They're up about 19%, 18% I heard, but we won't quibble about that. And, and, but what that's largely driven by, of course, is the costs of business. So whether that's energy or insurance or utilities, uh, you know, there, there's there's a whole raft of cost of business uh, increases that uh, you know hotels, restaurants, guest houses have to wrestle with, and unfortunately, it finds its way into the consumer price. So undoubtedly, why, why I, is that? I, because you have well, the well, you have the business energy support scheme, and you have the reduced VAT rate. So why are you charging consumers more? You shouldn't well, be. We, well, this is since 2019, of course, we're talking about. And uh, and remember, the Business Energy Support Scheme is only a fraction of support towards the, the you know, effectively the, the doubling and trebling of energy bills that, that businesses have to wrestle with. And ultimately, restaurants and hotels and guest houses and B&Bs are commercial businesses and have to cover their costs. So unfortunately, um, you know, this is, there's, there's 20,000 businesses in this sector the vast majority SMEs, 70% of them, by the way, in regional Ireland. This yeah. is Ireland's largest indigenous industry and biggest regional employer. And the vast majority charge fair prices and reasonable prices. The stories I saw this morning really shocked me. I, I thought they were, they were scandalous prices being charged for, for bunk beds and so on yeah. in, in, in hostels. But I think the vast majority of those bedrooms that have been sold for weeks now, Claire, have been sold at very fair and reasonable prices. Otherwise, the punter would not have bought them. Well, you're saying that people should vote with their wallet and vote with their feet, but where do they go? Well, if if if, if a city is booked out for a weekend, unfortunately, there's no availability. So, so as I mentioned, St Patrick's weekend is a really strange one because of the rugby, the festival, the, the parade. And, of course, Mother's Day. So, unfortunately, Dublin is booked out. But there's lots and lots of availability over the summer months, both in Dublin and throughout the country, which hopefully the domestic market will enjoy and international tourists can enjoy. Mm -hmm. Now, the figures that we're referring to, they're in the Irish Daily Mail this morning, and and Gareth McNamee has done the legwork on this, saying that 98% of Dublin hotel rooms are booked out. It kind of makes a mockery of the case for the reduced VAT rate, doesn't it? When the business is doing so well, when hospitality can sell 98 percent of hotel rooms in Dublin over one weekend? Over one weekend, but there's 52 weekends in a year, remember. Um, and the 9% of that rate, we, we campaigned quite hard for it, and we were delighted that um, and the, the oh, cabinet I know you were, extended, yeah. We were delighted that the cabinet had extended it for, 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 for six months. It's a very important tool for the tourism industry. It puts us on an even keel with the rest of Europe. And remember, No, we're more care, expensive to dine out than London, Paris or Rome, so it doesn't. 
we're, we're sort of mid-ranking in terms of um, uh, comparable cities across Europe. But that's, that's, that's by the by. I think, I think the key point is that VAT is a consumer tax. So if the VAT rate had gone, up, got, gone, gone increased, it would ultimately have found its way to the consumer because the vast majority it's of It's a consumer's thousands... tax because you say it's a consumer tax because no, you VAT, threatened, VAT. you threatened no, your industry threatened to pass it on to the consumer no, if it was increased to the level it should be at. Value added tax, whether it's on a hotel bedroom or on a, a shirt you buy in a shop, is added to the to the, to the sales price. That's that's the that's the law. Um, some businesses, a, a, a minority of businesses, will be able to absorb it to the bottom line, but the vast majority of tourism and hospitality businesses are SMBs, very labour intensive with modest profit margins. They can't afford to absorb it to the bottom line, particularly with all the increased costs elsewhere, and therefore ultimately it will find its way to the consumer. So I think the government was perfectly right in an inflationary cycle to extend VAT 9% for a further six months. Okay, the Fine Gael Councillor Danny Byrne uh, is quoted in that Daily Mail piece today and says that Ireland's reputation for being poor value for money is something that is driving prospective tourists away from the capital. Do you agree with that? I think value for money is absolutely critical for Irish tourism. We've always been uh, very strong on this point. Um, And I think if we lose our value proposition, there's going to be significant problems uh, long term or certainly medium term for Irish tourism. It's going to take a long time to recover. So I think, you know, I would urge any tourism provider, uh, a hotelier, a restaurant, tourist attraction to provide value for money. Prices have gone up. That's self-evident. That's that's undeniable. But what's key is that the experience remains really good for the um, prospective uh, visitor. I think excessive prices like you've referenced in the Daily Mail, I think are outlandish and I think are, are are not reflective of the broader tourism industry. Owen Amara Walsh, CEO of the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation, talking high hotel room prices in Dublin on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Verena contacted Liveline after yesterday's discussion on cannabis. She told Joe Duffy about her daughter Ashling, who needs medicinal cannabis that's very difficult to get in Ireland. We do welcome the Citizens' Assembly. I think... Um It'll be good to raise discussions on mm-hmm. alternative treatments for not just for cancer, but for mental health. When people are using and abusing drugs because of pain, and I do think because you no, know, I, I I believe it's the same as you know alcohol. It's how you use it. Mm-hmm. You can use alcohol to relax. You know, some people can abuse it. It's the same with medicinal stuff. It's you know, cannabis and, you know, so I, I just think, we do, I have no idea what, what it's like for my daughter and I'm her mum and I have no idea what it must be like. So I have to accept, I can't even try to understand because I only know my own journey as her mum and I have to accept that hers is horrendous and to support her to find ways that she can find things to use, not misuse, but to use to benefit her and to give her a peaceful life. Yeah. And Ashling is just 17. Um, how did Cannabis Isle come, come into your life? Um, well, we heard of it through um, um, a kind of an unofficial support group um, oh. that we have. Um, and it, it was actually maybe quite common, or common in the sense that maybe, you know, you'd have half who haven't needed to turn to us and then half who said, you know what, it's worth giving it a go. Um, we didn't find any bad effects. Nothing mm. bad has happened to anybody from 
trying to give a lot of people peace, relief from pain. Um, and there are, of course, from misusing any substance, there are yeah. going to be, you know, for the general public, there's always going to be psycho, you know, it's going to mm. work on your psyche and it's going to, of course, there's that risk, but there's that risk with, there's a risk with anything, I think. You know, even Ashling likes to have a bit of honey in her coffee and I'm thinking, right, and to watch how much honey she's putting in and how much coffee she's having. Like, we can misuse anything, but she's exceptionally wise, I suppose, in mm-hmm. how she needs to look after herself and mind herself. And there's nothing that she's had that she's misused, including her prescription drugs, which were yeah. the Oxy drugs, the Oxy Norm and the okay. Oxy Cotton. She never abused them and they were readily available to her. And if people knew how many we had in the house at that, at that time, you know, they'd have been, they'd have been a wanted oh. drug on the, on the street. So, and, and Verena, what, what is Ashling's condition that demands such uh, strong medication on the four you mentioned, Oxycontin? And, uh, so, Ashling was 15 when she first started getting sick um, and the signs were, you know, a paleness, a weakness, weight loss, um, we were told it was a virus and okay. it would take some time for her to recover from it and we we took that and we said okay because you don't think it's ever anything more serious and we took that and then the lockdowns happened and you know it was we were still linking with the medical practitioners at the time and it was still seen as a virus you know there was nothing yeah. Now, when we look at childhood cancer symptoms, we can see them all, but you just never think cancer. And unfortunately, at the time, she was trying her best to do what her peers do, mainly because she didn't want to look like a drama queen. Or, you know, it was in her mind, it was just a virus. And she was saying, God, don't be so ridiculous. Get up and get active and do what you need to do. But she was exhausted. Um, And it wasn't until she was 16 through A&E that uh, she got a chest X-ray and there was an eight centimeter tumor in her right lung and wrapping herself around her heart and everything and just, yeah, our world's turned upside down from there. So it was a cancer diagnosis? She initially got, um, initially they didn't know what it was mm-hmm. um, and they we, they did a biopsy. She has what's called an inflammatory myofibroblastic uh, tumour sarcoma. Um, they are very, they are a rare entity in, okay. in, in the case of tumours. They're usually benign. Um, under um, more genetic testing and stuff, they discovered her was cancerous um, and it, it has a genetic mutation of an ALK-positive gene. So we're chasing the ALK-positive research in non-small cell lung cancer to get her the drugs that she's on now. And I, I know this because you, 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 told, you said it in your email, the prognosis is, is not good. Her prognosis is treatment until progression. Um, and all the research we've done, um, she can have these ALK-positive treatments. And for non-small cell lung cancer, they have an exceptional um, response rate, you know, with the five-year survival rate being quite significant for non-small cell lung cancer. Um, the, there's three generations of that drug available at the moment. Um, Ashling tried the first drug. Okay. We thought on average she'd get about a year b- before progression, and it was five weeks. And her tumour started growing again in her lungs, so they did the surgery. But because the, that drug is not approved for sarcomas, it's, it's, it's designed for lung cancers. And she does not have lung cancer. 
she has a sarcoma that just happened to start off in her lung. And how is it, what treatment is Ashling on now? She is on a targeted uh, therapy. Um, it's called Electinib or Alakenza. It's, um, it is an exceptional drug. Um, and it does keep, it, it's technically, as we like to describe it, it's a sleeping pill for the cancer. Um, and it'll keep it asleep. She takes four in the morning, four at night. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a lot of side effects that come with it. Um, you know, neurological as well. Even, you know, she, she'll forget, or if she's telling someone a story, I, I, I nearly have to say to Ashley, you haven't given the context, so they're not going to understand what you're talking about. And she'll she'll go back then, oh yeah, I can see what I've done now, you know, and it's it's little things like that, you know, and then the physical mm-hmm. side, the heat in her body, like, that she feels, that the temperature gauge can't pick up, but she feels constantly. The sweating, the headaches, the migraines, it's its tough on her. And what's, what's Ashling's day-to-day routine? She can have good days and bad days. <clears throat> I think she reserves energy for the good days. She enjoys them, she gives them her all, and then mm. she could be in bed for two days after that. Um, and it's those days that nobody sees she if she goes out and about people say jesus she's doing brilliant you know she's fantastic mm. and, but it's it's that might be two days out of a week that she can that she can do that that's marina telling joe duffy about her teenage daughter ashling's condition on this afternoon's live line Comedian Garrods Farrelly and Eurovision winner Niamh Kavanagh joined Ryan Tuberty this morning to talk about working together. I mean, to be fair, you know, everybody talks about coming out behind the bank teller's desk 30 years ago, but I had already done seven years of gigging. Yeah. So talk about the overnight success in seven years. <laughs> you know, I just came. It's kind of funny. I had done quite a lot of things that were successful before that as, and it's well documented. But actually, I feel Garrod pain when he talks about things and I have to talk him off a ledge many times before he does something. <laughs> and I keep saying to him, you know, actually, you're great at this. You don't have to worry because who you are is always going to be what's important. But the difference is for me, I can sing a song at the end, no matter how rubbish I am talking. Right. I And I'm not no slouch of that. But yeah. actually, you know, it doesn't matter. But actually, he has to be funny. And I say that to him, you have to be funny now. If you're not funny, it's, it's all over first. God, that must be exhausting. Yeah, I, it's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> really, really tough. And he, and he uses it to his advantage in Agony Rants when we do that because actually, because he edits the show, de- generally speaking, you know, yeah. I'm actually funnier than it seems in that show. <laughs> Thanks to a little uh, judicious <laughs> editing. So the pair, the pair of you, do, you do a, a podcast together called yes. Agony Rants, just as you say it. Let's talk about that for a minute. Oh, I love it. Because I was just curious as to how how you guys met. I mean, it's the obvious question, but it, it was peculiar genesis in some ways. Oh, I mean, yeah, it, was, it wasn't peculiar, it was creepy. <laughs> My favourite. <laughs> okay, okay, so, so the, the, the uh, Garode's uh, way of describing it is he was a fan uh, who lived around the corner from me because uh, we lived in Glasnevin North as was, but Fingless East as I grew up. <laughs> and uh, he came around the corner to knock on the door because you thought... You won Eurovision. So, and I, I realised that the, you know, the current Eurovision winner lived in the area and I thought well then we just have to be friends I just need to impose this on her So yeah. Neve won Eurovision Neve won Eurovision You were living around the corner Yes Or thereabouts knowing that this superstar like the Eurovision was... winner lives around the corner well, so you went 
He knocked on my door. So it's just like random door. It was like, yeah, hi, hey, hey, me. Perry. I remember I was How's talking to my mum in the in the hall, <laughs> and uh, I remember it really well because I was talking to my mum in the hall, and there was a knock on the door, and the door opened, and I was kind of standing back a bit, and somebody must have opened the door near the nearer to it, and yeah. he was just standing there about four steps back from the porch. You know the way you kind of stand would, back yeah. from the door. You know, like they're yeah. going to sell you something or you know sing a song. I thought he was going to or sing kill a song. You. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, you know, there is that. Uh, there was a little bit was jeopardy. The, I like a little it jeopardy. Was the acceptable face of stalking back in the day. I was just going to say. <laughs> what was your opening? Well, it's the most polite stalking like, I've ever heard. Oh, no, he was. I, mean, I live around the corner. I'm just one of the neighbours just calling yeah. to say hello and uh, congratulations on all your he used success. To call, he used to call in regularly. I used to look yeah. forward to it. And sometimes okay, he wouldn't speak. <laughs> that took guts. <laughs> he wouldn't speak. Sometimes he wouldn't speak. He'd be so like, oh, there you are. <laughs> but actually... Hi, Lee, when's your album coming out, Neve? Yeah. Mm, uh, he has always been a taskmaster the whole way. But, you know, the thing about Groats, what you don't know about him also is he's incredibly supportive of musicians and other people creating. <laughs> okay. And he hides behind this I'm a tough comedian facade, but he's always like he's always giving you jip for not creating. So that yeah. he's he's always about that. But actually we just became friends naturally over a period of time. You move from that stalker situation. It's quite, it's, yeah. it's like a Stockholm syndrome <laughs> thing. Say, you know? <laughs> you're the Patty Hearst of the Irish Eurovision world. I know, I love yes. it though. I can't quit him. <laughs> you can't quit. You can't so you drank the Kool Aid, pints of it. And, uh, yes, um, I did. I was a good became, girl. And became <laughs> friends. But this is a friendship that has endured, clearly. Oh, for sure. Uh, and and we would be, you know, I used to bring him to, when I, I brought him to the Late Late as, as my sidekick a couple of times. I was just times. thinking about that this morning yeah. because I, I, I remember your, your friend Mairead. Yeah. The two of us would go with Neve when she oh, was singing in your eyes. And we, would, we would stay at the bar and we'd yeah. watch Neve on the monitor in the green room. And we no always idea, had, like... we had this moment where it comes to the bridge of the song where it's like, oh, here we go. Because the high bit of in your eyes, we call the ha-has. Like, she needs to get this right now. Come on, big breath, Neve. Come on, go girls. Here you go. <laughs> like, so not only are you worried about the nation, worried about, then you have to deal with these, these two having the crack. And Waldorf. Oh, yeah, they're yeah. desperate. And, and so actually, we used to kind of joke all the time and for a long time we were looking for somebody to pay us to work together. You know, we were really looking to... I, Surely at some point somebody's going to big because I think they just didn't know we were friends. Yeah. And then during the lovely COVID, we, we won't talk about that, right? We're trying but basically, to we decided, I say we, I said, for God's sake, I need to do something. And he said, let's do a podcast. And so we kind of came up with the concept and... There's nothing more natural than this podcast because basically we used to meet up for coffee and talk about stuff and now we basically meet up for coffee and talk about stuff. With microphones. With microphones. And people write to us. It's like, it's really shocking. Astonishing because I did a podcast before this called Fascinated that was about a documentary and there was a narrative and there was clips and it was Mm. crafted. A lot of work. I was never interested in podcasts where it's just two people talking to each other. And then... (laughs) And I thought, this will last six weeks. <laughs> we'll get a good six weeks out of this. But people have problems. Oh, yeah, they, oh, they do, do have problems. And, and they, they are willing to share. Yeah, they are. With a comedian and a Eurovision winner. I know. And I mean, if you're coming to us with your problem, I mean, yeah. we're you're, really no way you're the last on a list. Yeah. We're <laughs> in no way qualified to deal with it, right? Like, I mean, but you honest. admit that regularly in the podcast. Regularly. You're, you're, you're at pains to say, listen, mm. don't, we're not the experts here, but people seem to trust you for different reasons because of your probably your life experiences. And they think, okay, you seem like good eggs. Let's yeah, but do you not think... It, also, most people just want to say what they're talking about. And actually, sometimes you're only going to do what you want to do at the end of the day, right? But 
have you ever you just say what you want with your friends and we say how we feel and then we we usually laugh about it quite a lot we try yes. not to be insensitive but sometimes we can't help ourselves well, we, I, the, the, the <laughs> thing I've, I've learned from from day one really yeah. is that you find humour in the darkest places and, and people no matter really? how horrible their lives have gone yeah. especially Irish people I think oh we need humour they'll turn around and say mm. something and you'll say Hang on a second. I thought you were in the like in the gutter in, in yeah. your heart. <laughs> and they go, I am, but I still see the humor. I know. <laughs> you know because there is humor and, and everything. And, and really? that's the thing. Even the, the, the genesis of the show um, in the pandemic was we were both having a lousy pandemic, oh, and yeah. we thought, well, we're actually. We're all right. Like nobody's sick. Nobody's We're, sick. We have, we have very nice jobs that we really we enjoy, and, and we really enjoy a much worse time. Yeah. And I think the idea was that every Monday morning, which is why it's a Monday, it would the worst time of the week that we're gonna do our damnedest to. I guess make people laugh when the, they're the most on the comment bus. that we get sometimes when people write, "Oh, we love the show, we love the show," and uh, depending on who they like the best, they they lead with that one. It's increasingly more growth, which I, I was going to take up with you later. But anyway, uh, the thing yeah. is, oh, yeah. uh, it feels like you're listening to somebody on the bus. Did you ever like sit in the bus and somebody's having a better conversation yeah. behind you? It's the best so, radio. Exactly. Yeah, so that kind of works really well for you. Yeah. And you know, I love that. I love people Easy watching. I, and I like that. And I like when people come because even when people talk about my wins. 30 years ago they're not talking to me I've said to you before they tell me their story and I like that right so I'm eternally interested in people because they never make fail to make me laugh or to interest me in the way they are and Garode always has the best lines The sniff that stayed in the edit That's Niamh Kavanagh talking about her Agony Rant podcast co-host Garrods Farrelly on this morning's Ryan Turberty show The recent row over editing Roald Dahl's books for children reflects our modern oversensitivity or it's long overdue. It depends on your point of view. Claire Byrne spoke to Elena Ryan, CEO of Children's Books Ireland, to get her take on it all. You've been looking, I know, at the list of words and phrases removed or changed in the Roald Dahl's book. So what do they include? Well, there are hundreds. So the full list was published by The Telegraph in an article called The Rewriting of Roald Dahl. And in terms of themes, there have been moves away from gendered terms and ideas. So things like boys and girls, husbands and wives, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Language to do with mental health, so being mad or crazy. Uh, Language to do with being fat, specifically fatness being bad. And similarly, language around colour, specifically blackness being associated with badness. So black cloaks, black figures, black faces, little black eyes, things like that. There's also been some language around slavery removed. There were a couple of instances in in Matilda and in Essio Trot and language around violence. So things like people exploding have been removed. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that there has been so much chat and controversy around this. The British Prime Minister weighed in, Salman Rushdie weighed in. What's your own view on the changes, Elena? Should the books be reworked or just be allowed to fade from view or should people just have a choice as to whether to read them or not, sanitised or not? Well, it's fascinating how many people care about children's books this week. (laughs) But my overarching take on it, I suppose, is that nuance is needed as we look at this whole issue. So it isn't right either to be in up in arms about the censorship without having thought about the reasons for the changes, nor is it okay, I think, to accept them blindly because that would be dangerous if we can do whatever we want with whatever text we want. So I think a lot of the edits I would have happily and swiftly made if I were the editor of an unpublished manuscript. So that is to say I agree in principle with the vast majority of them in that context. But whether it's right 
to make them posthumously and lots of decades after the artist has written them is a different question as to whether you agree with the substance of the changes. I think they're being presented by, you know, the, the naysayers as driven by overly sensitive adults and, you know, we're depriving the children of a bit of fun when, in fact, I think a lot of the changes were made in order to prevent harm to the child reader by exposing them to language and messages that belie really just unacceptable prejudices. So uh, Philip Pullman has hit the nail on the head, I think, when he said it's it's simply a way of keeping the titles commercial on the publisher's side. The alternative being to wait for them to go out of fashion and just let them go out of print. But with 250 million books sold worldwide, there's no doubt it's imperative for this publisher to keep one of their greatest assets relevant for the modern reader. And, uh, you know, that said last week when they announced plans to publish the classic collection of Roald Dahl's works, they kind of undermined the decision mm-hmm. that they made in the first instance. You know, you can't know where those editions are going to end up or you know not not necessarily the whole world has been paying attention to this debate over the last couple of weeks so I don't know if they'll be ready to choose their preferred edition of the text so what they've done is find a further opportunity to sell a different edition of the book presumably to keep both sides of the debate happy and ultimately sell more books. And what do you think about that decision? It undermines the reason why they did it do you think? Yeah it does slightly I mean uh, you know the, the other thing that Phil Pullman really stressed was that there are a huge amount of incredible other writers out there and it's something that we see an awful lot is that parents naturally and, and with some sense of nostalgia will look to Roald Dahl and to Enid Blyton to the things they read as children because they haven't read a children's book in a couple of decades. So, you know, those are the books that people reach for and a, a lot of my professional life is spent telling people that there are other options out there and directing them to reading guides or resources on our website to show them what else might be out there. Because we do, don't we? We revert back to what we read as children when we're trying to encourage our children to read. That's why we keep returning to these titles. Also yeah. because, certainly in the case of Roald Dahl, they're really good books. Yeah, there's. I mean, gosh, there's nobody um, knocking Roald Dahl in any of this. I think the, the outcry has shown how beloved he is all over the world, particularly we've been hearing it in the UK and Ireland. And I think he writes with such mischief and uh, irreverence and he was always focused on what was going to make his readers laugh. So I think, you know, that's the thing we have to be careful, that there has to be a limiting principle, that you have to keep that that fun and that spirit and that spikiness that people have talked about in Roald Dahl's writing. But, you know, some of these changes I think are very benign. You know, changing mothers and fathers to parents does an awful lot in terms of representation of families that aren't made up of a mother and father, for instance. But Mm -hmm. it does absolutely no harm to the story, whereas there are other elements, you know, things around body image, they haven't fixed the problem. You know, Bruno Jenkins, the little boy in the witches, gets turned into a mouse by the Grand High Witch and, you know, he no longer, they, they no longer say, here's your little boy, he needs to go on a diet. So they've they've cut out some of that sort of toxic diet culture stuff in there. But there still is, you know, the Augustus Gloops and those fat characters who are the subject of ridicule. So I think we do well to look to, to modern books and modern writers as an alternative as well to, to the classics. And you say some of the changes that they made, in your view, they're a bit pointless. Give us a couple of examples of those, Elena. Yeah, some of them seem to be senseless. So horrid old witchy woman changed to horrid old woman in George's Marvellous Medicine. I'm not sure what the objection is there. You know, likewise, ouch, changed to uh. <laughs> maybe that will brighten up those horrid brown teeth of hers changed to maybe that'll brighten up her smile. So there are certain things that and Oh, I suppose this. some people might have a genetic condition which leads to them having brown teeth. Would that be a, an explanation for that one? Potentially, and I think there's probably an awful lot 
around disability as well. You know, in the witches, they, they no longer say that their feet were, that, that they had no toes. They say their feet were square at the end. So I think, you know, there are certain subtleties that I'm not qualified to, to comment on because I don't have that condition or I don't identify as disabled. So I, I'm sure that an awful lot of thought has gone into it and the organisation Inclusive Minds does great work in, in thinking it through. I suppose it, it, an ouch to an uh is... I don't <laughs> understand that one. I don't understand <laughs> it. And they've done, you know, not this publisher, but other publishers have done a lot of work on Enid Blyton and trying to modernise the language. And, you know, sometimes I kind of think kids will get it by context. I have a five-year-old who finds the word Tommy Rot absolutely hilarious. And I yeah, think they just you don't want it. to lose the richness. Uh, you know that argument, though, that has been made since all of this came up, you know, that if you're tinkering with an author's work, you're messing with the authenticity of the book. Yeah, and it, I mean, they've put a disclaimer at the start of the new editions to say, you know, words matter and the wonderful world of Roald Dahl can transport you to different places. This book was written a long time ago and we regularly review the language to ensure it can continue to be enjoyed by all today. We see the same thing at the start of Disney films, you know, in terms of Aladdin and things like that, where they'll flag where there's potentially an offensive stereotype. But I mean, Roald Dahl edited himself in his own time. The, the Oompa Loompas, for instance, are, are now people rather than little men but previous to being little men there there was a real um, racist undertone to that they were effectively slaves from Africa and uh, you know coal black people with broad grins in, in the illustrations so I think the books have evolved even in Roald Dahl's time um, so uh, what I suspect is that there's a lot of this going on behind the scenes that just maybe hasn't been as high profile as this case Elena Ryan CEO of Children's Books Ireland talking about the Roald Dahl censorship row with Claire Byrne this morning. A woman called Maeve Dennehy popped up on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show to tell him all about a mystery. You spotted something that was put up on social media. What mm-hmm. was it? To be honest, I didn't spot it. Oh, um, didn't No, no, no. Um, a friend of mine sent me a screenshot of it maybe two weeks ago and it was a picture of a diary from 1967 with my mum's maiden name and address in it. A woman had posted it on a Facebook page saying she had found it in a bag and did anybody know the owner? And to cut a long story short, a couple of people belonging to my mum, her first cousin, her brother had spotted it and told the lady that I owned a business, um, mm. uh, a clothes shop, and the woman was good enough to just post it down directly to me. Aha. Yeah. Now, you didn't give all the details about where exactly it was found. It was found in a bag, but mm. it, it, it sounds to me like it was secreted away, hidden. Yeah, so it, it landed in the shop and I um, got the lady's name on Facebook and right. sent her a message and just said, you know, thanks so much. And can you give me a bit more detail? Obviously, I'm curious. My mum will be gone five years um, coming up in about five weeks time uh, so I was dying to know the story mm. and she told me that a year ago she bought the bag in a charity shop but only a couple of weeks ago she went like there was another compartment inside the bag and mm. went to take that out and found this little diary um, and it's lovely like there's little snippets of my mum's life my mum would have been 22 at the time Oh great, great uh, Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah Interesting, do you know yes, what I mean? Yes. Obviously I won't be telling you all of it but it's <laughs> go, No, no I was, no, I was promised no. I was getting all of it <laughs> No, that's for me and me only yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it's lovely it's, yeah. it's very interesting it's just little snippets of everyday life you know Yeah, so Maeva Flynn, John Street 1967 mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah Okay, the bits that you can tell us Yeah, of so, course So what was she doing back in Was she working or She was working um, she was living at home and in John Street and she was working in a place called Melina 
Um, I think they used to do beauty products. Right. Um, I, weirdly, in the diary, she went to mass every day and I would have never considered my mum very religious, but that's interesting. And mm-hmm. and going to dance halls, going to bingo, um, you know, having nights in with her friends, uh, ringing my dad, like John John has mentioned in it. Like oh, and hold like, on, so the, the, because it's so flinched, they weren't yeah. married at that no, stage? No, they weren't. No, no, okay. no. They weren't married till she was 25, so it would have been three years later. And I don't think they were even a couple at that stage. I right. think he was, he was on the scene, I'll say. Do you know Aha. that kind of... <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was on the he was in the friend zone before the friend zone he even was, existed. He was there somewhere. Anyway. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, and, and confiding in her diary back <laughs> mm-hmm. in 1967, mm-hmm. was she saying nice things about your dad? Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. There's nobody who would say bad things about my dad, but yeah, it was lovely. It was just it, it's more that he's he's mentioned that she phones him or you know. Um, like went on a day out to cross Avon with him, you know, oh, yeah. which seems like such a big thing then. Whereas now you just pop down there, you know. How Anytime. far is Crosshaven from Oh, Cork? like it's only 15 minutes from right. Cork now, but I yes. suppose it would have been a, a trip away at that stage, you know. But but phoning somebody mm. and, and going for a mm. day out, it was, mm. that's, that, back in 1967, that was serious. That was a line, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 my mum was fun. My mum was um, out having fun and going to dance halls and everything else. Right. And like I said, my dad has mentioned, but I don't think they were, I don't think they were doing a serious line at that stage. <laughs> so they weren't exclusive, as <laughs> no. they say now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's lovely. It's, it's just really interesting to see her day to day life, you know. Yeah, and you've read it cover to cover, have you? Uh, yeah, like it's it's quite sporadic. Like some weeks she'll put an entry in every day, and then there's nothing for a few weeks. And it's it's not in depth, you know. You know the way people are all into journaling these days yes. and all of that. It's not like that at all. It's literally a kind of I got up at seven thirty, <laughs> went to mass, you know. Yeah. Saw Kay. Um, Who's got, Kay? Kay would have been one of our friends. Yeah. Um, sent a letter to Kitty. Kitty would have been one of our friends that lived in England. Right. It's more that. It's more her kind of day to day routine. Um, yeah. But but it's it, just lovely to see. It, Obviously, I feel like she's you know. We we sort of and this is we're all guilty mm-hmm. of this I think um, you know we we see our parents not as as our parents mm-hmm. and not as individuals who had lives before we existed mm-hmm. absolutely <laughs> and this gives you a lovely window into and it, it's actually, yeah you're so right you forget that they were once you know young and carefree yes, yeah, and yeah. Um, no it's absolutely lovely now my mum would have been very open and honest person anyway and would tell me things you know and has done over the years um, but I suppose you know you know when you when you lose people you kind of you miss that link or that mm. connection of, you know, the little snippets. I suppose I really listen to things my dad says now because I'm like, I might not hear these again. But mm. you don't sometimes, particularly when I was younger, maybe now I do. So to have this at this age where I value it and I'm, it, it's really interesting. And, and, and your mum, you say, died five mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. Uh, and you lost your sister, Karen. Mm, yeah, Karen, my sister would have died at 39. Um, ten years ago. Ten years ago, yeah. this month actually, yeah. Right, okay. Um, in March, yeah, at 39, so. And you were all you were trying to have children through all of that as well. So yeah, it was... I suppose it's been a, a busy few years, but I suppose I, and that's where I was coming from with the diary. I massively believe they look after me. Ever since Karen passed, I believe she looks after me. I've had a lot of um, luck in my life over the years. Um, in business and at home and um, I, when I went to have children then we had some difficulty but I had my son Ned um, he's five now and mm. he was form- like obviously brought massive joy to all our family you know he was the first grandchild on both sides yeah. and long story short my mother fell ill three months later um, and was only sick for five weeks before she died so, Circle of life huh? Oh that's exactly what it is you yeah. know but uh, before she passed in the hospital I found out that I was um, pregnant naturally and I had a little girl Molly so I do believe they sent me a little girl 
Um, and I, I kind of believe that my mum sent me this diary and in a weird way because it's coming up to a tough time for all of us, for yes. my brother and my dad. And, and now I have this little little gift again, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I no, choose no. to believe that all these lovely things happen to yeah. me and I'm going to continue that way. <laughs> no, that's, that's, and that's brilliant because but because they're five and ten, you know, they're two yeah. significant they're anniversaries. Two, yeah, they are. And they are, they're, they're sort of, Twenty uh, fourth of March. I'm looking here, and twelfth yeah. of April. So yeah. they're they're back to back. Yeah, they are. What, what does your dad <gasps> think of the diary? Has he read it? Uh, he hasn't read it yet. I only no. have it a week. All um, right. I'm meeting you now after this. Actually, um, I only have it a week, so I haven't shown it to him yet. Um, my dad is a very practical man. Adores my mother. Adored my mother. Still adores my mother. I would imagine knowing my dad, he won't want to read it. Um, you know, he. He has all those memories. Do you know what I mean? He knows what my mother was like when she met him. He constantly yes, talks yes, about how fabulous yeah. she was, how stylish she was. You know, he'd always say she stood out from the crowd, that she had a great personality as well. And, you yeah, know, so yeah. I think knowing my dad, he'd, he'd obviously we'll discuss it, but I'd say he'll just sit with that memory. Um, but he thinks it's lovely. You know, he, yeah. he kind of laughs at me believing in half the things I do, but he goes along with me. Yeah, I'm glad that one of our texters spotted what I spotted. Tell me. Yeah, uh, Maeve sounds so lovely. She's the voice double of... Oh God, who? Go on. I don't know. Lily Higgins. Oh, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a moment there of what is going to come at me. <laughs> Maeve Dennehy talking to Ray Darcy and taking accent plaudits from listeners on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, a rather alarming stat, courtesy of Today with Claire Byrne, the Environmental Protection Agency estimates that there are around 1,300 premature deaths every year in Ireland that are linked to air pollution. John Wenger, Professor of Chemistry at University College Cork, and Dr Oisín O'Connell, respiratory consultant at the Bon Secours Hospital, joined Claire to discuss this. And our host began by asking Oisín what kind of health conditions are linked to air pollution. I suppose I, I think back to when I worked in the lung transplant unit in Ireland and we'd sometimes recondition the lungs, getting them ready for transplant. And my best description of describing the lungs is the lungs are like a series of pipes going into balloons. And the balloons are kind of in a sponge-like uh, material. like So you can actually feel what a, a lung feels like. It's soft, it's spongy, air, it's able to move air in and out of the body easily. Broadly speaking, when we think of lung conditions, we think of what are called obstructive lung conditions. Uh, Roughly speaking, there's 500,000 people in Ireland with obstructive airways disease. And the two commonest ones we've probably heard of is asthma and COPD. The way I think about those conditions is it's as if somebody's narrowing the pipes going into the lungs. Mm -hmm. But the other kind of lung condition that we can have is what's called a restrictive lung problem. And what that's like is, if you think of the normal lung being soft and spongy, restrictive lung condition is one where the lung doesn't fill up to its adequate capacity. We all lose lung function over time, but people that are exposed to chronic air pollution um, and any kind of environmental toxin actually lose lung function anywhere between two to three times faster. That mightn't sound a lot, but actually over time that adds up a lot. So it's not just one individual exposure. Um, so going back to your, your spongy lung, balloon-like lung, as, as you explained, if air pollution is a constant factor of someone's environment, are you talking about a hardening of that spongy substance? 
Yeah, so so you get what's called a loss of the elastic recoil. Uh, it becomes kind of much more tattooed, meaning like the if, if you think of a tattoo on the skin, the same kind of uh, effect happens in the lung when we're exposed to chronic airway irritants, meaning the body absorbs toxins, but there's certain toxins that the body can't get rid of. And instead what it does is it builds up inside in the lung. So uh, getting back to the sponge analogy, it's kind of like think of a, a sponge and you've just dipped it in sand and it's never going to have the same elastic recoil properties as a, a soft sponge that has never been exposed to any airway irritants. Mm-hmm. Okay, John, so let's uh, talk now about air pollution itself and what it is. What is air pollution? What are we talking about? So air pollution is, is where we have any added materials that go into the air. So they could be gases, and you may have heard of nitrogen dioxide or sulfur dioxide or carbon monoxide. Um, but also particles. So we have a large number of very small particles that can be emitted into the air from things like combustion sources. So that's burning of anything, really. Um, That could be, um, you know, emissions from traffic, and it could be uh, emissions from fires in the home. It could be emissions from industry. It could be emissions from agriculture and so on. So there's a wide variety of sources of particles in particular. Uh, But all of these materials, whether they're gases or particles that are moving through the air, a lot of those can be breathed into the respiratory system and obviously then they give rise to the health effects that uh, she was talking about. So, so given what you've said then, those emissions will be at their highest levels during the winter months, wouldn't they? They are indeed. Uh, and it's, it, it's now really um, flagged a lot in Ireland that our biggest problem really is with solid fuel burning during the winter months. And um, that report that you talked about, it, it's just a normal air quality bulletin that the EPA issues. Um, and what they show is the pollution, again, is higher in our smaller towns than it is even in the bigger cities. Mm-hmm. And, and it isn't concentrated very much in towns that have uh, a large amount of solid fuel burning going on. You're talking about towns the size of Ennis, Tralee, Letterkenny. Um, I'm, I'm from McCroom. McCroom has a problem. But many small towns across the country have that now. And the EPA network is picking up these emissions and picking up the values and reporting those. And how much has the geography of the area to do with the levels of air pollution in those towns? Yeah, that can be significant. Um, so, for example, if you take a town like Ennis, I think it has a particular problem because of its local geography. I think it's in a bit of a dip. OK, so what that means is that the air pollution is less likely to be dispersed. And so the concentrations will rise and people are breathing more pollution. Um, and Escorthy in Wexford, we might be, we'd be monitoring there. That has a similar problem. And McCroom, where I live, actually, also has a similar problem, but the town is set in a valley. Mm-hmm. And so the, the pollutants can linger and build up in concentration through the night. Um, and that's, that's why we sometimes get these exceedances. Particularly when you've got no wind, right? When it's a still day. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think the last few days we've had slow uh, wind conditions as well and that can really exacerbate the problems. The wind is our, our friend in many ways for dispersing pollution and when it's, um, when it's quiet and it's, it's, it's uh, still weather conditions, th- th- those are typical for air pollution uh, exceedances. OK, so Oshin, so let's come back now and talk about the impact on health because everyone will know when you walk into a room that has an open fire, maybe you're opening the door, you're causing a, a, a pullback with the draft and you can sense it straight away, can't you? you become irritated, maybe your eyes start to water. That's perhaps part of the the short-term impact on your body and on on your health. But then if you repeat that process, what's going on? Um, I suppose part of the 
way I look at the body, I, I, I sometimes when I'm talking to medical students, I think of the body like a classic car. And uh, basically, there's short-term consequences and long-term consequences to chronic insults. So if you were told when you're born you've got one uh, car for life, you'd service that car every day, you'd look after every individual part. The effects of air pollution, they can be such subtle and gradual, but actually over time that builds up. Um, so think of the oil as uh, the air is like the oil going into a classic car. You want good quality air to preserve lung function. On average, everyone loses about 30 mils of lung function per year. A smoker loses about 70 mils of lung function a year. Now, there's huge variation in that between genetic factors and environmental factors. But actually, air pollution is a major contributing factor to an accelerated decline in lung function, and that can manifest in later life. It can manifest as breathlessness, it can manifest as coughs, it can manifest as an easy ability to pick up chest infections, it can manifest as frailty and reduced exercise tolerance. So if you just look at the long-term effects of these, it's very subtle. So on a day-to-day, you don't notice it happening in your body. This is a long-term consequence There are short-term, there's very good data showing that actually transient high air pollution increases infective exacerbation rates of asthma, increases hospitalization rates for hospitals, and actually some athletes even track the air pollution quality in the area before they go out and train just so that they will train in better uh, air quality environments. Mm -hmm. I have a listener here who wants to know, is it okay to go for a walk at night because they feel there's so many fumes in the air from chimney smoke. Can this be bad for my lungs? I suppose that's about weighing up your risk, you know, the benefit of taking a walk versus what you're inhaling when you do so. Yeah, certainly poor quality air does increase your risk of chest infections. And I suppose one of the commonest symptoms that uh, I get referred on is is people that say that they've got a bad immune system, that they pick up chest infections easily. And I actually say most of the time that that's not the condition. Actually, they've probably got an undiagnosed obstructive airways disease, be it asthma, be it COPD, or be it a different condition. And a lot of those patients benefit from inhalers. So if somebody is finding that poor quality air is causing overly dramatic symptoms in them, it may be that they've got an under undiagnosed obstructive airways disease and they may benefit from inhalers down the line. Mm-hmm. You said earlier on that each one of us loses 30 mils of lung function a year. Is there any way to mitigate against that or is that going to happen regardless of what we do? Um, it gets back to the kind of uh, the quality of the air. Like, like staying fit and active preserves lung function, avoiding airway toxins. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Nilo Shuradon. Don't forget, you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck. Oh, no.